The Hamlet Podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's book club, in which we've reached the third and final part of King Henry VI. This is a weirdly unruly play, full of seemingly endless fighting. Shakespeare took it upon himself to stage a historical period characterised by repeated battles, and as such they are a defining feature of the play. On stage, it can feel like a rather long pageant of drumming, armies moving and alternating declarations of control. We've met the key players as their characters developed and their fortunes waxed and waned during the previous two plays. It's leading up to a showdown between King Henry's side and the House of York. The latter party has a whole new generation of Sons of York joining the fray. The most dramatic of these is Richard, the wicked hunchback for whom Shakespeare has great things in store. The pageant-like feeling that attends this play is enhanced by the fact that most of its characters represent a very specific personality trait. Indeed, that's the safest way of trying to keep track of who everyone is. So we have Margaret, who is increasingly outrageous. We have the gentle King Henry, the very lusty Edward, who will be king by the end, the ambitious Richmond, and the gleefully wicked Richard. While researching this episode, I came across the gloriously titled On Shakespeare, Jesus and Karl Marx, a book of essays that are still fascinating over three decades after they were published. The author, Philip Brockbank, talks about how the characters in this play are somewhat two-dimensional. So long as the characterization is neutral, the first tetralogy displays barbarous providence, ruling murderous automatons, whose reactions are predictable in terms of certain assumptions about human nature. When argument fails, men resort to force. When an oath is inconvenient, they break it. Their power challenged, they retort with violence. Their power subdued, they resort to lies, murder or suicide. Their honour impugned, they look for revenge. Their enemies at their mercy, they torture and kill them. And if a clash of loyalties occurs, they resolve it in the interest of their own survival. Such might be the division of a play's pantomime, but its dimensions are not confined to its pantomime and to its shallower rhetoric. The anarchic, egocentric impulses are not presented as the inescapable laws of human nature. They are at most manifestations of forces that automatically take over when the constraints of government are withheld. Law and order cease to prevail when men cease to believe in them, and the process by which this comes about is explored in the play's dominant characters. That's an extended quote, but it resonated with me quite a bit this week as we've been watching the process of a regime change play itself out in real time. Any sense that the characters in Henry VI are simplistic or cartoonish might be explained by the fact that this trilogy was among the first things Shakespeare ever wrote. But hey, political discourse today is still dominated by larger-than-life characters making mistakes and trying to get away with them. But the major achievement of the play is the way that Shakespeare develops the character of Richard of York. The play opens with his father, York, coming to a weird agreement with King Henry, that they'll let Henry live out his natural life as King of England, and then the crown will pass to the York gang. 
Obviously, Margaret is beyond furious at this, and any civility she had left in her evaporates as she tears strips off her husband for abandoning her and their son for this deal. Meanwhile, Richard rather convincingly persuades his father that surely it'd be nice to have the crown sooner rather than later. And father, do but think how sweet a thing it is to wear a crown within whose circuit is Elysium, and all that poets feign of bliss and joy. Why do we finger thus? I cannot rest until the white rose that I wear be dyed, even in the lukewarm blood of Henry's heart. The father is persuaded. Richard, enough, he says. I will be king or die. But he won't be the first to go. In a place so full of fighting and death, the first that really packs a punch is young Rutland, youngest of the House of York. He's killed quite violently by the nasty Clifford, one of the play's most brutal characters. He's fighting with Margaret, who herself shows the true depths of her character when their faction wins and she gets the chance at last to torture York. Not content with tying him up in his post-battle agony, and not indeed content with putting a paper crown on his head and mocking him, she eventually produces a handkerchief stained with the blood of Rutland, his youngest son, and taunts him with it before announcing that he is to be decapitated. This is certainly not the kind of behaviour to be expected of English royalty. York then gets a very long speech in which he's allowed to tell Margaret that she wolf of France what he thinks of her, and then he's killed. Shakespeare seems to be showing us just how nasty this civil war must have been. Meanwhile, we start to wonder if the showdown will be Richard versus Margaret, Richard versus Clifford, or what. It's definitely going to be Richard, mind you. In all of this, where is the actual king? Sadly, he's rather useless, much better at thinking about battles than engaging in them. Shakespeare gives him a big speech in which to ponder his crown and his life and dream of other things. This battle fares like to the morning's war, when dying clouds contend with growing light, what time the shepherd, blowing off his nails, can neither call it perfect day nor night. Now sways it this way, like a mighty sea, forced by the tide to combat with the wind. Now sways it that way, like the self-same sea, forced to retire by fury of the wind. Sometime the flood prevails, and then the wind. Now one the better, then another best, both tugging to be victors breast to breast, yet neither conqueror nor conquered. So is the equal of this fell war. King Henry goes on to dream of a quiet life in the country, a peaceful manner in which he might spend his time. It's so utterly inappropriate that it's almost glorious. He is a king that has had this greatness thrust upon him. But while this feckless ruler philosophises, Shakespeare stages one of the most startling and effective scenes in any of his war plays. From one direction a son enters carrying his dead father, and from another we see a father and his dead son. It encapsulates perfectly the division, the heartbreak and the destruction wrought by civil war to quite remarkable effect. Henry is poised centre stage and has to observe the whole scene. 
What stratagems, how fell, how butcherly, erroneous, mutinous, and unnatural, this deadly quarrel daily doth beget. Poor Henry doesn't really come up with much of a solution. He muses that in order for peace to have any kind of a chance, one of the roses, York or Plantagenet, will probably have to wither. But that's hardly effective or decisive leadership. By contrast, Richard flits about in the background, saying the right thing to the right people as the House of York, now led by the man who will become Edward IV, continues to fight for dominance. But Richard is the one to watch. He's the one who speaks to the audience, actually announcing his villainy and his plans, and letting us see his machinations. Why? I can smile and murder whilst I smile, and cry content to that which grieves my heart, and wet my cheeks with artificial tears, and frame my face to all occasions. I'll drown more sailors than a mermaid shall, I'll slay more gazers than the basilisk, I'll play the orator as well as Nestor, deceive more slyly than Ulysses could, and, like a Sinon, take another Troy. I can add colours to the chameleon, change shapes with Proteus for advantages, and set the murderous Machiavel to school. Can I do this and cannot get a crown? Tut, were it farther off I'll pluck it down. While many of the other protagonists might seem one-dimensional within this play in their various ways, Richard is not. He's more lusty than Edward, more violent than Clifford, more ruthless than Margaret, and certainly more strategic than King Henry. As he's saying, he can put on any face and play any role. By default, he becomes the star of the show, because he's the one who's letting us really feel part of it. He's witty and he's very smart too, which helps. I can't help but wonder what it might have been like for an audience seeing these plays for the first time, watching as all of a sudden this most notorious king becomes, in Shakespeare's hands, and he was the first person to do this, the most dynamic character on the stage. Obviously it was successful. Richard is going to get a play all of his own. But what of the current play? Things really come to a head when the Yorkists murder the son of Henry and Margaret, Prince Edward. He might have been another king, Edward. Margaret would have been delighted with that. But they take turns stabbing him very violently. As the grandson of King Henry V and that line, it's understandable that the House of York would want him out of the way. Margaret is distraught and begs them to kill her too. Richard is about to oblige, but his hand is stayed by his brother. Why should she live, he snaps, to fill the world with words? Margaret isn't going anywhere. In fact, she appears in all four of these histories and is the longest single Shakespearean female role. With Margaret silenced, the last showdown is between Henry and Richard. The outgoing king, as we assume he is, has a few choice words for the upstart, but isn't even allowed to finish his speech before he's stabbed to death. It's interesting that Richard is the one who does it, not the successor, but his awkward scheming brother. So Richard remains the one to watch. At the end of the scene in which King Henry dies, Richard makes an extraordinary proclamation, one that will resonate through Shakespeare's plays for the decades to come. I am myself alone. Scholars have filled pages and pages over the years with discussions of Shakespearean self-definition. 
we can be safe in assuming that it all starts here, with Richard. As the play concludes, the sons of York are celebrating their glorious summer, and all the clouds that lowered upon their house are in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. Well, nearly all of them. Richard might have a thing or two to say at this very party, at which Shakespeare quite remarkably will open his next play on this subject. As we've been doing so far, between all of these histories, we'll take a break from the Wars of the Roses next week. Instead, we'll head back to the ancient world, this time to Egypt for Antony and Cleopatra. We've only a handful of plays left to read on this journey through the titles of the first folio. I hope you'll stick it out until the very end. All of the remaining plays are hits, all populated with some of Shakespeare's most fascinating stories, unforgettable characters and extraordinary ideas. If you missed out on any of the previous episodes, you can find them all on a handy book club playlist on the website, thehamletpodcast.com. For now, stay safe, take care of yourselves and those around you, and I'll speak to you next time.